backs and pain and sore knees, and one day we'll be perfected in glory, and we long for that day. But if Christ hasn't been raised, we're the biggest fools in the world, aren't we? What are we doing here on a Sunday morning and worshiping God, a God who couldn't even resurrect our Savior? But that's not the case. Our Savior has been raised, and that means we're not fools. We're the wisest people in the world by God's grace because we're worshiping the Savior, and we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of real wisdom. And so we praise God for that. There might have been a statement there that might have thrown you off. Paul said, why are they baptized for the dead? You ever heard of that statement? Obviously, the Mormons baptize people for, baptize for dead people. Notice that Paul doesn't say, why do we get baptized for the dead? He says, why do they get baptized for the dead? Paul's point there is that, look, if pagan Gentiles are baptizing for the dead, even they realize there's an afterlife, there's some sort of resurrection, how much more should we as Christians, who at the very center of our faith is a resurrected Savior, how much more should we believe in the resurrection and live in light of that? So that was Paul's point. And that's why we're here this morning on the Lord's Day, because we are living in light of the resurrection of our Savior. So let's go now through our Savior to the Father in prayer as we prepare to hear from Him in His Word. Father, we're so thankful that there has been indeed a resurrection, the most glorious resurrection of all, the resurrection of our Savior, our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that it was impossible for death to hold Him. Even the Old Testament predicted that. The psalmist said that God would not abandon His Holy One to decay. Isaiah wrote that even though the Messiah would be cut off from the land of the living, yet God would prolong His days, that He would see His offspring and be satisfied. What an amazing reality. And Lord, we are that spiritual posterity, that spiritual seed that is the fruit of His labor. He sees us now and one day He'll present us before Him in perfect glory. And He will be the reward that He has purchased and won for Himself through His work on the cross. And we're so grateful for our conquering, majestic, victorious Lord and Savior, one who effectually brings us to God and saves forever those who draw near to God through Him, and one whose resurrection affirms the guarantee of our resurrection. And so Lord, we thank You for that. We thank You for what the Lord's Day means to us. It's the dawn of a new creation. It's a foretaste of glory to come as we gather together and attend the means of grace and fellowship together. We long for the day in which our fellowship is perfect, our worship is perfect, our sight of Christ is perfect. But now as we engage in these things imperfectly, we thank You that You've given us this gracious manifestation of glory on earth. We pray that You would hear our worship this morning as we continue to sing and hear from heaven and pray and respond to the Word. We pray that Your Word would accomplish its work in our hearts, that Your Word would transform us into the image of Christ, and that You would be pleased to use us as a church for Your glory. So be with us now, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning is going to be... uh, Sort of like last week, last Lord's Day, uh, we're going to take a a break again from our study of 1 John. And if you know me, you know it's hard for me to do that. I don't take many breaks from our regular exposition. But I figured I'd follow up on last week's sermon with another message that deals with uh, kind of the same issue, the issue of the local church and membership within that local church. Obviously, we know what we did last week. We met at a different building. The The acoustics were nice. The sound was nice. But... We met there for a purpose, to baptize three people, and so I 
brought a message on baptism and church membership. And uh, we considered several things last week. We talked a little bit about what the church is. We talked about what baptism is. We talked about how the two are connected, the local church and baptism, and how it brings about church membership. And we also asked at the very end, is church membership biblical? Is church membership biblical? And of course, the obvious answer to that is yes. But now this morning, what I want to do is follow up on that. And I want to provide you with several marks of a faithful church so that as you find one, when you find a faithful church, you'll be able to identify that as such. Uh, Because if you're convinced, hey, I should be a member of a church, I should be a part of a church, the question is, what am I looking for in a church? What should we as Christ as King Baptist Church be and do as a church? And so those are some questions that we'll think about this morning. And to do that, we're going to be in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You may not remember this, uh, not all of you were here, but uh, back in last September 2019, when I came here as a pastoral candidate, I actually preached to you on one verse. That was kind of a preview of what you were going to get. I preached on Acts 2.42, and this morning we're going to consider that verse again, because I think it's helpful to constantly be reminded of what a true and faithful church looks like. So we're going to be in Acts 2, and we're going to look at verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. But before we get there, let me quickly go back to the issue of church membership just for a moment. Last week we learned that baptism means to immerse, from the Greek verb baptizo, means to immerse. Uh, We learned that the church is an assembly of redeemed people, those called out of darkness into the light of God's kingdom. That's what the word ekklesia means. Ek means out from. Kaleo means to call. We're a group of people called out of sin, called out of darkness, called out of the world to formulate an assembly of people who are the kingdom of God, who make up God's people. Uh, We also learned that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. It's a picture of what takes place at our salvation. Spirit baptism brings us into the universal church. Water baptism then ordinarily brings us into the membership of a local church. They are connected. So we learned that there's a universal church and there's a local church. There's an invisible church and there's a visible church. The universal church is a reference to all believers throughout every age, throughout every place in the world, who have been brought into union with Christ and one another by the work of the Spirit. Uh, you don't see that at one point. You don't ever see that whole church gathered together now. It's because, it's because of that, they call it the invisible church. But the local church then becomes a local and visible expression of that one invisible universal church. We are one such expression. So we also learned that water baptism symbolizes forgiveness and cleansing and union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. You go down into the water, you're raised up out of the water, that's why that is to be administered by immersion, because it symbolizes that glorious spiritual reality. But then at the very end, we consider the question, is church membership biblical? Is church membership biblical? You know, there are some people who would say, yeah, sure, we're supposed to come to church, or meet with the church, or you know, maybe even to some degree be a part of a church, but does it have to be an official process? Do I have to officially be a part of a local church? And I think the answer is obviously yes. It's yes. And I gave you several reasons to believe that last week, and what I want to do before we get into Acts this morning is give you a few more reasons to believe that church membership 
It's biblical. <clears throat> Last week we affirmed that church discipline implies church membership and church vote implies church membership. 1 Corinthians 5, right? Expel the immoral man from among yourselves. We saw in 2 Corinthians that that takes place through a majority <clears throat> vote. And so, discipline implies a belonging. To be disciplined out of a church, you have to belong to a church. You have to be in a church that you belong to so you can formally be disciplined out of that congregation. So church discipline then implies membership. But then church vote also implies membership because when we vote, who gets to vote? Do we just kind of let anybody come in off the streets? We don't know anything about this guy. He's an atheist maybe, Satanist. We don't know. But he's here this Sunday. We're voting. Let's let him vote. Is that what we do? The answer is of course not. We have to have a way of distinguishing between the church and the world. We have to have a way of distinguishing between who can vote and who cannot vote. And the way we do that is church membership. So church membership becomes a way to make that distinction. And then finally, last week we concluded that submission to leadership also implies membership. Submission to leadership implies membership. Hebrews 13.7 tells us that we are to obey our leaders, our leaders, our pastors, our elders. And that implies that we are a part of a church where we have a group of leaders shepherding us, caring for us, who are our leaders. We belong to that particular congregation. Those leaders are our leaders. As I mentioned last week, if you're just bouncing around from church to church, or if you're not a part of a church, you can't obey that command, and therefore you are disobeying that command, and therefore it's sinful. And so we need to be in a church where we're officially a part of that church so that the leaders who shepherd us are our leaders. And the writer of Hebrews says that these leaders, they keep watch over our souls. They watch over our souls, and they have to give an account. And you don't want to do that in such a way that you make it difficult. You want to do it in such a way that it makes it a joyful process for them. And one way we make it easier for our elders to shepherd us is that we have an official membership role so they know who their flock is. It be very difficult to shepherd a flock if you don't know who it is. You don't know who the ones that make that flock up are. And so membership becomes a way to make that easier. So church discipline, church vote... Submission to leadership, all those things imply membership. But this morning, let me give you a few more reasons. Just a few more. If uh, you're not already convinced, maybe this will do it for you this morning. So now we could add the, uh, the argument of spiritual gifts. The argument of spiritual gifts. The Scripture is very clear that every believer has a spiritual gift. Peter says each one has received a gift, so use that gift. We all have gifts. And the Scripture also makes it clear what the purpose of those gifts are. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So what's the purpose of the gift? To edify the church, to build up the church. And since every Christian has a gift, since the purpose of those gifts is to edify the church, then it logically follows that every believer should be a part of a church where he can use those gifts to build up that particular body of believers. So spiritual gifts then becomes an argument for membership. Ephesians 4 says this. says that Christ gave gifts to men. More specifically, He's given gifted men to the church, and here's why. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So God gives gifted men to the church to train and equip the whole church to use their gifts to serve in ministry so that the whole church is built up. That takes place in the context of a local church 
And therefore, spiritual gifts imply the necessity of local church membership. Then you could add the fact that Christ died for His church. Ephesians 5 says that. Christ is building His church, Matthew 16, 18 says. You want to be a part of the only institution God's promised to build and bless? It's the local church. God's church. You add the fact that local church membership distinguishes between non-believers and believers. It provides an opportunity for service. It becomes an opportunity to have assurance. Anybody can run around as a nomad on their own and say, hey, I'm a Christian. We have lots of people that do that. But if you're a part of a local church, you can a biblical local church that functions biblically, you'll be able to gain assurance. Here's how. You know, Matthew 15, we were working through this chapter the other day on Wednesday night. Jesus tells the apostles, whatever you bind on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be, or whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that is in the context, by the way, of church discipline. He's talking about, you know, if your brother sins, etc., you know, and eventually treat him as a tax collector and a Gentile. The point there is the church has authority to say, yes, this person is exhibiting the evidence of genuine saving faith, and therefore we can declare with heaven this person's forgiven, accept them into the membership of a local church. And so if you're a part of a church, you'll have leaders who care for you, a flock who cares for you, that can confront you in your sin, that can say, hey, yeah, we think you've made a credible profession of faith. We're going to accept you into the membership of a church. Or, we don't think you have. Your life is not characterized by the righteousness that a true believer's life is characterized by, so we are going to have to deny you membership. And then, Lord willing, that leads to true repentance and true faith. So local church then becomes a means of assurance. It provides opportunities for service. In light of all these reasons, why would we not want to be a part of a local church? Of course, you want to be. That's why you're here this morning. There's no other reason you would show up here uh, in a place like this where we don't have great acoustics and we don't have entertainment and we're not, we, you don't get a juggling clown and a horse show on Sunday. You get the Word of God. You don't come here unless it's because you want to be a part of God's church and be where God is working. And so obviously, we get this stuff, but it's important that we remind ourselves of this. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. We're members of the universal body, the universal church, and therefore it follows that we ought to be members of a local church. A local church. Hebrews 12.23 speaks of the universal church this way, as the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Some of your translations may say whose names are enrolled in heaven. So God keeps a list of the names in the universal church, and we ought to do that on earth in the local church. God keeps an assembly of the redeemed. We ought to have an enrollment of the assembly of the redeemed on earth. Then you add this. Every New Testament letter was either written to a church to churches or to leaders in a church. Romans was written to the church at Rome. Galatians was written to the churches of Galatia. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, they were written to leaders in the church. Clearly, the New Testament is a very local church-centered document. It is a book made up of books that were addressed to local churches. God takes the local church seriously. So should we as followers of Christ. Every member then, every Christian, every believer should be a part of a local church, should be a baptized member of a local church. John MacArthur says that church membership is a spiritual issue, it's a fellowship issue, it's an authority issue, a ministry issue, and an evangelism issue. It's a spiritual issue because we've been joined to Christ, we've become one spirit with the Lord, 
And therefore, we need to express that by being a part of His church. It's a spiritual issue. It's a fellowship issue because we're commanded in Scripture to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and do life together. And the primary vehicle that drives that fellowship is the local church. It's an authority issue because we're called to be under godly leaders and submit to those leaders who care for us and watch over our souls. It's a ministry issue because it's in the context of the local church where we use our gifts and serve and minister effectively to one another. And it's an evangelism issue because biblical effective evangelism flows from the life of a healthy church. And, of course, it produces new converts who then become members of the local church. So it's, these are the issues. Someone who refuses to join a local church, perhaps they have a spiritual issue. Maybe they're not converted. Maybe they're immature. Maybe they're needing some sanctification. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a fellowship issue. Maybe they don't want to be a part of God's people. Maybe it's an authority issue. Maybe they don't want to submit to godly leaders. They don't want to be accountable to the other members who are going to hold them accountable. It could be an evangelism issue. We don't want to do the Lord's work. A ministry issue. We don't want to serve. But if that's you, what do you do? If you've, you've never joined the local church, what do you do? You obey the Lord. You obey His Word. And you become a member of a local church. So, local, so membership in the local church is undoubtedly a biblical theme, a biblical topic, a biblical command implicitly from the Scripture. Now what does that process look like? What does it look like? Did, did the early church have a membership interview? Did they have a form to fill out? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, the New Testament doesn't give us the explicit details. So what do we do? We take the principles of the New Testament concerning membership, and then we formulate a process that is consistent with those principles, and then we carry that out in the life of our church. And I think that's what we've done here at Christ as King. And if you're interested in that membership process, again, you can sign up back there on a sheet of paper, or you can come talk with me, and I'd be glad to get you started in that process. So, membership's biblical. You're convinced. You say, you're right. God wants me to be a member in a local church. The question is, what do I look for? What do I look for in a local church? What is a church to be and to do? What, what are the marks of a faithful, sound, solid, biblical church? You know, all churches are not created equal. Uh, many churches in our day compromise on the truth. There are many false churches. There are many unhealthy churches. Many unsound churches all over the place. All over the place. On just about every corner there are churches. And so it seems like, what's the problem? I mean, it shouldn't be that hard to pick, right? Well, the problem is many of them are unfaithful to the truth. Many of them propagate a truncated gospel, an incomplete gospel. Some of them altogether a false gospel. There are many, many problems in many churches. <clears throat> you know, one popular thing today is that we, we replace the biblical methodologies laid out in Scripture for man-made methodologies that are seeker-friendly. We want to we avoid offending the masses. We don't want to offend people. We want people to come. The primary goal in many churches isn't spiritual growth. It isn't the glory and honor of God. It isn't the propagation of the truth. It's that we get seats filled and we get more money in the offering. That is kind of the idea in many churches. Many churches kind of just make it like Burger King. You just have it your way. How do you want it? We're just about seeking to serve you. But in reality, the local church should be less concerned about what people want and more concerned about what God wants. He's the builder of the church. The purpose of the church is the glory of God. And therefore, we should want to function as a church in a manner consistent with His design. 
So what do we look for in a church? <clears throat> what do we look for? What do we try to be as a church? How can we measure our faithfulness as a church? I think Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 provides us with a wonderful blueprint on that. Just some context. In Acts 2, the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, They've been told by the Lord to wait for the Spirit. He's come. On Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out. Cowardly Peter now becomes bold Peter, preaches the Gospel. 3,000 people are converted in one sermon, and those 3,000 people make up this first church. Let me read this passage. Acts 2, and I'll start in verse 41 for context. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So then those who had received His Word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a wonderful church, isn't it? A wonderful model for us. And you don't get 47, by the way, the Lord adding to our number. You don't get that unless you get 42 to 46. True growth is the product of God's blessing on a faithful church. So this is a blueprint for us to find. We find here several marks of a faithful church. Marks that I hope, as we consider this morning, will give you clarity on what a faithful church looks like. Give us all clarity on how to function and what we are to be as a church. So several marks of a biblical church. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 42 this morning, but uh, Lord willing, if I have time left over... And I probably won't, but Lord willing, I'll try to make some brief, brief comments on verses 43 to 47. So number one, number one, the first mark of a faithful church is devotion. Devotion. They were a devoted church. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves. Now stop there. You know, it's easy for us to read over that statement and just jump right, ignore that part and jump right into what they were devoted to. But I think we make a mistake if we do that because we need to dwell on the fact that they were actually devoted. Here's a wonderful, wonderful mark of a faithful church that we can easily skip over. It's a wonderful thing to be devoted to something. There's very little devotion in our age. No devotion to a job, a family. No devotion to a church. No devotion to anything, for that matter. People in our day swap churches as quick, if not quicker, than they swap their shoes. Church commitment is just not something that characterizes our age. You know, I go to church, if I don't like the music, hey, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not committed to a group of people. I, I want what I want. Or I go to a church and I don't like the child care, I'm done. I'm out of here. There's just no commitment in our day. People just hop from church to church. That appeals to our flesh, doesn't it? Just to kind of hop around, visit this church, visit that church. That appeals to our flesh because if I do that, if I'm not a part of a church, there's no accountability. There's no There's no one over me who can hold me accountable, keep me faithful, question me, confront me. Those things don't happen. I don't need to contribute. I mean, what do I'm just here to visit and here to consume and have a consumer's attitude, take in, get what I can get. 
come to church for an hour and a half, look at my watch, hurry up and get home for the game. You know, that's they pay the pastors for all the work. I just come and go home. That's a dominant attitude in many American churchgoers. They just come to get what they can get. But that was not the case with this first New Testament church. These people were devoted. They were devoted. Not only were they devoted, but the text says they were continually devoting themselves. They, of course, refers back to the 3,000 in verse 41. Peter preaches, the church begins with a bang, 3,000 people are converted. And what do we find these 3,000 people doing? Going home and you've got to call them on Saturday and say, hey guys, don't forget about church on Sunday. No. These people are devoted. They're devoted. That's what happens. All 3,000 of them were committed. That's what happens when people are truly converted. When people are truly converted. You ever wonder why you have a conversation with someone, seems to go well, they profess faith in Christ, and then you wonder why you can't get them to come to church on Sunday. Why? Why aren't they devoted? Most of the time, it's because they're just not converted. Just not converted. American Christianity is just a popular thing. We do it because everyone else does it. My family did it. I want to get out of hell free card. I want to give... I want to commit the least amount I have to just to get to heaven. If I can do that, I'm good. So I'll pray the prayer, sign the card, but forget about committing to the local church. But that was not the case with this first church. They were devoted. Those words, continually devoting themselves, the Greek word there is proskartoreo. proskartoreo. It means to persist, to persevere, to continue to do something steadfastly. One writer defined it this way, It means to continue to do something with intense effort. To do something with intense effort. You ever think about your church membership that way? It takes intense effort, hard work, commitment. There are many here today that I know know about that. I mean, it's amazing how well we serve one another, even if it's just calling to check on someone throughout the week and bringing a meal in so many ways that this local church serves one another. I'm thankful for that. That was the case in the first century church. They were devoted. They worked hard to love one another, serve one another. They were committed. They were committed. And with this statement then, Luke tells us that this was a saved church. This was a saved church. That's where it starts. The problem in many churches today is that it's filled with unbelievers because we have adopted an unbiblical, dangerous detrimental philosophy of ministry in most churches. What's the goal in most churches? Let's go into the world, hand out flyers, try to get people to come to church, unchurch the church, uh, church the unchurch, get unbelievers into church, and then gear the service, cater the service around what they want in hopes that they become Christian. That is not the purpose of the church. The church meeting is not primarily about evangelism. The church meeting is primarily about God and about the saints. It's about worshiping God, glorifying God, and edifying the church. Then we go into the world with the gospel and we do evangelism in the world. So Luke tells us this was a saved church. It was a church made up of true believers. Genuine Christians. Unlike the church in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Sardis, where the Lord says you have a name that you're alive but you're dead, unlike that church, this was a living church. A living church. Many churches are dead, but this was a living church. So Luke says they're made up of true believers. They're devoted. 
They didn't just go about around trying to get unbelievers into the church. That wasn't the goal. God, the gospel was preached, people were saved, and then people wanted to come to church. That's how it worked. That's how it worked. The church was made up of true believers. Those who are truly converted will be committed to Christ, to His people, and to His church. In John 8.31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. That's what a true believer does. Are they perfect? No, none of us are perfect. We're a band of misfits, right? We're sinful, we, we fall often, but we're people who love Christ, love His church, and are committed. That's what a true believer does. He continues. So the first characteristic then of a healthy church is that it should have a saved membership. A saved membership. That seems basic enough, doesn't it? But it's so basic that many churches in our culture miss it. They miss it. You see, the only way you're going to have a faithful church, a devoted church, is if you have a church made up of saved people. Unsaved people aren't devoted. Unsaved people aren't committed. So it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to have non-believers in the church. You know, we're not going to put up a sign outside that says no unbelievers allowed. We, you know, unbelievers are going to come in. We get that. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. The unbeliever comes in, but the word's being preached. He falls on his face, says God is in this place. So unbelievers are going to come in. And we're thankful that when they do, they hear the gospel. They hear the Word of God. They sit under the ministry of the Word. We're thankful for that. But the goal is not primarily to get unbelievers in. That's not the goal. The goal is to edify God's people. Having unbelievers in the church is a threat to the church. It threatens the purity of the church. The unity of the church. You wonder why in many churches there's no one coming. You wonder why there's people fighting. There's so much going on. You wonder why there's so much sin. And, And even true believers sin... Why is there so much of it running rampant in most churches? I've been in churches where you're in the youth group and these kids are out of it. I mean, this, I've been a part of some bad youth groups. But why? Why does this happen? Because people want unbelievers in the church. That's not the goal. If we want a healthy church, we need to do the, our best to assure that the membership of Christ as King accurately reflects the membership of the universal church. That only true believers are members. By the way, this is why we practice church membership. It's why we practice church discipline. Church membership kind of guards the front door, metaphorically speaking. We only want believers in. Church discipline deals with the back door. Those who live like they're not believers, we lovingly remove them from the membership in hopes that it brings them to repentance. But we do this because we want to be a healthy church that honors God. That honors God. And that becomes a means by which we protect the purity, unity, and devotion of the local church. So the local church is not a, not a social club. not a place that we just gather together just to hang out and talk about our hobbies. And just anybody can come. The local church is a place where God's people come to worship, to be edified, to be equipped, and then to go into the world with the Gospel in hopes that non-believers are saved. And when they're saved, they want to be a part of the church. So how about you? Are you devoted to your local church? Are you consistently attending on the Lord's Day? Are you at prayer meetings? Are you serving, using your gifts to build up the body? Are you devoted to the local church? That's the first mark. 
That's the first mark. So if you're looking for a church, that's where you should start. Does this church practice church membership? Do they practice church discipline? Are they concerned primarily with catering to the ungodly and and making the church fit what they want? Or are they concerned with God, His glory, and the sanctification of God's people? That's a good place to start. A faithful church is a devoted church. Let me give you a second mark. Not only are they devoted, they're doctrinal. They're doctrinal. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to what? Well, of first importance, to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Some of your translations might say the apostles' doctrine. That's a word that scares us, isn't it? In our culture. We don't like doctrine in our culture. We just, we're, we're real shallow. We just want to... I have Jesus. I have my personal faith. I don't really want doctrine. Doctrine divides, we hear people say. The word doctrine, don't be scared by the word. The word is didache. It just means teaching. Teaching. Doctrine is teaching. It's teaching. So what is Luke saying? Luke is saying this early church was devoted to biblical teaching. The apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the Word of God. The apostles' teaching was the teaching they received directly from Christ, and then they recorded that teaching for us on the pages of the New Testament. And now we have their teachings in our Bibles. You know, it's interesting out of the four things that Luke says the church was devoted to here, what comes first? The Word of God. The truth of God. The teaching of God, of Christ, about Christ, through the apostles recorded in the Scripture. And that's because when God's Word speaks, God speaks. When God's Word speaks, God speaks. Why do I get up here in the mornings and not just give you a story? Because the Word of God is what we need. We don't, you don't need to hear from Jamie, you need to hear from heaven. The Word of God is what we need. God's Word is the <clears throat> means by which He justifies us, by which He sanctifies us, by which He transforms our lives. The idea today is, like, I've got to be popular. I've got to, be, I've got to appeal to what the world wants. I've got to become like the world to win the world. That's the idea today. But if you want real church growth, just minister the truth of God's Word and sit back and watch what the Word does. The Word will, in God's time, build up the church the right way. The right way. Look, if we want a thousand members, we'll just go out and tell people that every day is a Friday. You know, your best life now. That's what God's offering you. And then what happens? They flock. They want their ears tickled. That's what non-believers want. But what do God's people want? They want the truth. That's why you're here this morning. You want the Word of God. God's Word is what God's people want. God's Word is what God's people need. James 1.18, James says this, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, the Apostle says, You've been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus said in John 17.17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. We heard our brother Jeremy pray that a minute ago. Sanctify them. By the truth. You see, if you want a ministry, if you want a church that is bringing about the regeneration of sinners, people being born again, people being justified, converted, sanctified, you want that, then what you need is a church that focuses on the Word of God and biblical doctrine. We have to give God's Word first place in our church. So it's built upon the Apostles' teaching. 
Paul says the church in Ephesians 2 is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the foundation of the church. Yes. The apostles are only the foundation of the church confessionally as they confess the truth about Christ, as they write the truth about Christ. They're the foundation of the church in revelation, revelatory, because they give us the revelation about the Lord Jesus. So their teachings, their writings, become the foundation of the church, namely the Scripture, the Bible. And since that foundation is laid, by the way, we don't need to lay it again, do we? You don't lay foundation, build the house, and then lay more foundation. I think you don't do that. I'm not a builder, but I think that's how it works. You lay the foundation, then you build the house. You don't need to lay the foundation again. The foundation's laid. The apostles, therefore, are no more. They've ceased. There are no more apostles today. They've passed off the scene. But we still have their writings. And those writings are recorded for us in the Scripture. That must be our primary devotion. 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, give public, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. That is a call for expository preaching. Paul's telling Timothy this, Until I come back, here's what you need to focus on, Timothy. Publicly read the Scripture, explain the meaning of the Scripture, and exhort the people to obey the Scripture. That is the focus of a local church. The Word of God, the exposition, the clear, consecutive, sequential, theological, practical exposition and explanation of the Word of God. That's why Luther said, I did nothing. Talking about in the Reformation, I did nothing. <clears throat> you know, we talk about these giants. We talk about Luther. We talk about Calvin. We talk about all these great heroes of the faith. <clears throat> Luther said, I did nothing. The Word did it all. The Word did it all. And that's the case of any faithful church. You know, people say this, I don't need doctrine, just give me Jesus. You know how you respond to that? I've told you before. What Jesus are you talking about? You can't define Jesus without biblical teaching, without biblical doctrine. And so while the rest of evangelicalism and professing Christians run into the shallowness of no doctrine, give me Jesus, we as a church, if we're going to be faithful and biblical and growing according to God's design, must give ourselves to biblical doctrine. So if you're looking for a church, what do you do? You find a church that's taking the Word of God seriously. Look at their doctrinal confession. Is it just a few shallow statements, or is it a robust statement of faith that is biblical, thoroughly biblical? Are they just telling stories in the pulpit or giving 15-minute motivational speeches, or are they giving you deep exposition of the Word of God? That's what you look for. Look for a faithful church committed to the Scripture. So they're doctrinal. The third, give you a third mark. Not only are they devoted and doctrinal, they're they're uh, fellowshipping, fellowshipping. Look at verse forty-two. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship, fellowship. Literally in the Greek, the fellowship. It's the word koinonia, a spiritual togetherness, partnership, participation, sharing. They shared life together. Why? Because they were in union with Christ. Verse John 1, we have fellowship with one another, our fellowships with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that you may know God and know Christ. All of us are in this unbreakable, universal, positional fellowship, and now we manifest that reality by practically meeting together and doing life together, sharing life together. 
But he gives us one expression of that fellowship. You go down. Here in verse 42, he says, they were devoted to fellowship, but also to the breaking of bread. One way they express their fellowship then is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread here is not a reference to a meal in general. It's a reference to a specific meal. What did we find Jesus saying? He's meeting with the disciples in the upper room. He says He took some bread and He broke it. Broke it. And He gave it and said, This is My body. Do this in remembrance of Me. This is the Lord's Supper. Along with the fellowship meal that would go along with it. The agape feast, Jude calls it. The love feast. The Lord's Supper was a meal in the early church. They would take the bread, drink the cup, but then they would feast together as an expression of their fellowship. These were people who loved one another. These are today we have this superficial relationship kind of thing. You know, we just kind of a Sunday thing. You see each other on Sunday, but we need to be opening our homes. We need to be spending time together, doing life together, being involved in one another's lives. Because Paul says in First Corinthians ten, there's one bread because we're one body. We're all in union with one another. We're in this fellowship together. The Lord's Supper focuses our attention on Christ and His glory, and it also expresses our fellowship with Jesus and one another. This was a church devoted to fellowship. Hebrews 10, what does it tell us? Don't forsake the assembly, but gather together and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what we want to do. We want to be together. We want to be together. Fellowship together. It provides wonderful ministry opportunity. You You open your home and People come over, you fellowship after the service, and it provides opportunities to get to know each other and then minister to each other specifically, to speak the Word of God to one another precisely. What what does this brother or sister need? What kind of word could I give him from the Scripture to encourage him, to build him up? If you don't know the person well, you can't do that. So we need to be building deep relationship. And the Lord's Supper becomes an expression of that. We take the Lord's Supper... We're reminded every week about the death of our Lord. We proclaim His death. But we're also reminded of our fellowship together. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we get another rare insight into the life of the church. Listen to what we read there. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. We learn a lot about the church there. When did they meet? First day of the week. What's that? Sunday. The day our Lord rose from the dead. That's why we're here together today, right? They met on the first day of the week. And what did they meet together for? To break bread. The Lord's Supper was one of the primary reasons they met. It's one of the primary reasons they met. You know, look at all these things in verse 42. If we only met once every three months for the apostles' teaching, to hear the Word of God, would we say we're a church devoted to the Word of God? No. If we only met once every three months for fellowship, would we say we're devoted to fellowship? No. If we met once every quarter for prayer, would we say we're devoted to prayer? No. But yet, in our culture, many churches meet once every quarter for the Lord's Supper and say, hey, we're devoted to it. We're following Acts 2.40. No. That's why we do it every week. That was the pri- one of the primary purposes of the meetings in the early church, was to partake of the Lord's Supper together, to constantly remind themselves about the death of Christ, about their sin, and their need to be cleansed and washed by the blood of the Savior. 
and to express weekly that fellowship together. So that's why we do it. That's why we do it. So if you're looking for a church, you're looking for a church that takes the Lord's Supper seriously. You're looking for a church that takes fellowship seriously. And if you're already in a church and you don't feel that's happening, you take the lead there, right? You take the lead there. You open your home. You fellowship. You try to create that culture of hospitality within the context of your local church. But that's what a faithful church does. They're a fellowshipping church. Let me give you a fourth one. Not only are they devoted, not only are they doctrinal, fellowshipping, but fourthly, they're praying. They're praying. These things are just obvious, aren't they? It's nothing new, nothing extraordinary, nothing spectacular, just the ordinary, everyday means of grace, and God builds the church. Look at 42 again. They're devoted, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, break, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Prayer. Prayer was taken seriously by the early church. When they're persecuted in Acts 4 and 5, what do they do? What do they do? They post on Facebook about how bold they are? No, they run to their company of believers and they pray, God, give us boldness so that we can with confidence declare the gospel in the face of opposition. And guess what they did? They did that. They were bold, even unto death. Even unto death. Acts 1.14, we find the 120 believers there in Jerusalem gathered together praying. They were devoting themselves to prayer, Acts 1.14 says. What does Paul say over and over again? Romans 12.12, be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without what? Ceasing. Pray. Pray. You know, the early church, we talk about it often, they turned the world upside down. They were amazing what they accomplished. In just a 60-year span in the apostolic era, I mean, so many people were converted. You even look now, tons of people all around the world are Christians. And that is birth in prayer. The apostles turned the world upside down because they were people of prayer. You know, perhaps we would have more power in the life of our churches if we prayed. Maybe there would be more conversions in our evangelism if we prayed. Maybe we would overcome sin and grow in Christ-likeness more increasingly if we prayed more. Just reflect on your life for the last week, last month, if you prayed. How much have you spent time with God? One writer said, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. That he is. Prayer is a flesh killer. Private prayer in particular. Because just about anything you do in the Christian life can be done to be seen by men. You know, preach to be seen by men, do evangelism, you know, serve my neighbor, uh, even pray corporately. But private prayer, no one sees you there. When you go into your closet and pray to your Father in secret. But it's both private prayer and corporate prayer that the Lord blesses. The Lord builds His church. The Lord accomplishes His purposes in the world through the people who pray. Churches do a lot of things, don't they? A lot of programs, a lot of events. We've got our trunk or treats and our VBSs and our concerts and all kinds of things. And that, some of them are okay. You can do those things. But there are very few prayer meetings. You notice that? Some churches have gotten rid of the prayer meeting altogether. It's just a Bible study. And look, we get it. The Word of God is central. We have to have the Word. But we also have to have it in combination with prayer. Prayer. That's why we pray every Wednesday night together. We spend at least 30 to 45 minutes taking requests, going around the room, praying. Because we believe that if God is going to accomplish His will through us, if we're going to grow, if we're going to honor Him, we're going to have to be a people. 
who pray. MacArthur says, sadly, prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs, concerts, entertainment, the testimonies of the rich and famous draw large crowds, but prayer meetings, on the other hand, attract only the faithful few. That is undoubtedly the reason, MacArthur says, for much of the weakness in the contemporary church, because unlike the early church, we've forgotten the Bible's commands to pray at all times and be devoted to prayer. That's clear, isn't it? We see that. MacArthur then adds, the first fellowship knew the critical importance of pursuing spiritual duties. They knew the church must be made up of saved people devoted to studying the Word, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those elements are the unique expressions of the life of the church. They are the means of grace by which the church becomes what God wants it to be. That's exactly right. That's what you're looking for in a church. Not a church that's trying to be extraordinary. A church that takes the ordinary means of grace and grows under God's blessing because of that. So the church is a praying church. Let me quickly make some comments very fast. 43 to 47. 43, they're a reverential church. Reverential. Go to 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Awe, the word phobos. Where do we get the word phobia from? It's from a root word that means to run in terror. To fear, to fear. It's a holy fear of God, a reverence for God. What produced this reverence in the early church? Look at the end of verse 43. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The apostles did miracles. It manifested God's presence and there was a sense of reverence and fear among the people. Now obviously the apostles are no more. We don't have their gifts. I can't heal the sick and raise the dead. But we can still cultivate reverence in our church when we take God's Word seriously, God's presence seriously. Church discipline produces fear in the church, a sense of respect and fear of dealing with sin and dealing with the presence of God. So that's what you're looking for, a church that does these kinds of things. A church that takes God seriously and church seriously and sin seriously. They were a reverential church. 44, we could say they were a unified church. Look at 44. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were together. They had a common purpose, common theology, common common service. They were together, unified. 45, we could add they were a sharing church. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It's amazing. This isn't communism, by the way. This is a group of people who love others, so they give up what they don't need to help meet the needs of others. That's what we want to be as a church, right? Loving the other members, looking for opportunities to sacrifice, serve, and meet needs. 46, we could say that they were a hospitable church. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Opening their homes, taking their meals together, doing life together, that's the kind of church that God blesses. 47, we could say they're a worshiping church. Praising God and having favor with all the people. They were constantly enamored with who God was. Praising Him, worshiping Him, and God blessed that church. They had favor with all the people because they practiced what they preached. They were a church that took sin seriously. Later on in Acts, God kills Ananias and Sapphira for one lie. One lie. The first act of church discipline is inflicted by God. It says the church, fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. 
It says the, dare, the rest dare not associate with them, but they held them in high esteem. Because this is a church that's really living out their faith. Not a bunch of hypocrites who say one thing and do another. A faithful church. They had favor with all the people. Then at the very end, we could add they were a growing church. A growing church. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were a growing church. God blessed that church. God added to that church. People were saved, radically transformed by the Gospel, and added to the local church. And no one is saved without the what? The preaching of the Gospel. Which means this was an evangelistic church. They were in the community proclaiming the Gospel, declaring their faith. God was blessing that and building the church. That's a faithful church, brothers and sisters. That's a faithful church. That's what we want to be at Christ as King. That's what you need to look for if you're here today looking for a church. This is the kind of church we want to be. I don't know about you, but I love this church. I love this church. My wife and family and I, we've been here for about a, just over a year now, and it's been a wonderful joy for us to get to know you all and be a part of what the Lord's doing here. You know, often too much credit goes to the pastor, and there is a real sense in which the pastors do have a huge influence in the church. Steve Lawson says, as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. That's true, a lot of truth there. And in God's gracious providence, you had a great pastor before I got here in John, and he labored and preached and did some great work. And, and thankfully, by God's grace, me and John have a lot in common. It was an easy transition, and I'm just building on what he laid. And so definitely, in a large way, pastors influence the church. But in reality, you all make this church what it is. Us together, we make this church what it is. God, by His grace, by His Spirit, by His Word, with this people together, that makes this church what it is. You're the ones that show up. You're the ones that want to hear the Word. You're the ones that love one another. You're the ones that make visitors feel at home and comfortable and like family very quickly. You're the ones that do that. And I'm glad to be a part of such a faithful church like this. And that's a joyous privilege of being a shepherd to you. What a joy that is. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're visiting with us. Maybe you have been for a while. and Maybe you're, you're wondering, what should I look for in a church? Well, let me say this. If you're not a member of a church, it is God's will for you to be a member of a local church. That's the will of God. What do you look for? What do you, you look for devotion. You look for doctrine. You look for fellowship. You look for prayer. You look for reverence. You look for unity and sharing and love worship, and evangelism. That's what you look for. And if you find a church like that, well, as they say, if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. huh? you find a church like that, you better commit to that church because I can promise you you'll find it to be a wonderful means of grace to your soul. So may we be committed to Christ's church. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that Your Word has brought such clarity to us as to what a church is to be and to do. Here at Christ as King, we just want to continue to be faithful. We want to continue to be conformed more and more to this pattern that You've laid out for us in Scripture. I'm thankful for everyone here this morning who's made this church what it is. I'm thankful to be a part of it. We're thankful for Your grace and how You're building this church here. And we're thankful for all the faithful local churches everywhere. All throughout central New York and America and the world that You're building and blessing and honoring. and Lord, we're thankful for that. My prayer is that anyone here today who's not a member of a church would consider 
doing that, whether it be here at Christ as King or somewhere else, at another faithful church, that you would add them to a church and you would bless their lifelong ministry in the context of your church. So Lord, please continue to sanctify us. We pray that we would experience real biblical church growth following your design. We've already experienced that. We're amazed as more and more people continue to come and we pray that you would continue to build this church and your universal church throughout the world for your glory. And we pray these things to that end and that purpose. Amen.